Welcome to Free and Fair with Fernita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues surrounding the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Fernita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs at the University of Southern California, Gould School of Law. And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University, Moritz College of Law. Before we begin, a quick note. You can find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Hey, Frenita. It's good to see you. Good to see you, too. Good morning. Yeah, it's been a little bit since we last uh, uh, recorded, so it's nice to be back into it. Um, uh, We had some good episodes with a guest, but this time two of us get to just riff as we usually do on on topics of interest that concern how to have a fair and free and fair democracy. Yeah, some big developments uh, recently. Yeah, um, lately there's been news about uh, the census and how the census affects representation in Congress in terms of the number of seats each state gets. And then eventually it'll affect how each state's seats get districted in terms of gerrymandering. That's still a few months away, but I thought it might be useful to, to, to look at what's going on right now and then think about, you know, how does the system work and does it work well? Does it, does it serve our values as democracy? Um, so does that sound like a game, game plan? Sounds like a, a really good uh, conversation, in part because um, there were a few surprises, Ned. So my home state of California lost a seat. Uh, For the and- <laughs> first time, like in... <laughs> right. uh, My other home state of Illinois lost a seat. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know if I'm the, the, uh, the, the bad factor here, but uh, also Michigan, New York, Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania. So, you know, states that we've talked a lot about in the last year as, you know, being important to the presidential election. Uh, oh, I, don't let me forget, West Virginia also lost a seat, uh, but we don't typically think of that as a, a swing state. But the others, uh, at least some of the others, not California and Illinois, are, are states that we've talked about quite a bit. So uh, I think one thing of interest definitely in this question of representation is how it affects presidential politics uh, in particular and, and sort of the strategy that we'll see in 2024. Um, but there are also states that gained, right? So Texas gained two. Uh, that's one that immediately comes to mind because of all of the you know, issues that came, that sort of cropped up uh, this past election cycle. So some big changes. Uh, and I think it, it, it does give us an opportunity to revisit these questions of representation. Yeah. And uh, did you see about New- the New York one was a particular interest just because of the number, I think it was 89 individual people. Right, <laughs> right. Made the difference. Right. And um, so that seat went to Minnesota because they, I think they had 26 more people fill out their census. And so they allowed them to pick up the seat, but 89 fewer people filled it out in New York. And so they lost the seat. I mean, you know, it does come down. I mean, every vote counts, every person counts. You have to draw the line somewhere. Um, So I don't think there was anything unfair about it. Uh, It just, it obviously hurts. Um, And and there's a kind of artificiality to it, right? I mean, the numbers of people in a state change minute by minute as their births and deaths and life goes on. And so, um, you know, 89 was yes, you know, at the snapshot yeah. moment that it that it was supposedly taken, but, you know, a, a day later, it's going to be different. 
Well, I don't, I don't know. So I agree with you. I think that, you know, that's just the, the census is outdated the second it comes out. Right. <laughs> um, but part of this is the, the problem with the 1929 reapportionment act, you know, the house should not be 435 people uh, for a nation of 300 million plus. Right. And so that, that really is part of the problem to, to the extent that this is about uh, representation and the fact that we don't have a direct democracy, right. We elect representatives to facilitate our policy choices. Um, and how can 435 people do that in a nation as diverse and, and big as ours, frankly? Um, and I think that's part of the problem. That's why people were, you know, I think somewhat stunned by the fact that so few people made a difference, but ultimately there's a larger problem with the fact that Congress is too small. Right. No, I think that, and that's a really good point. I mean, you know, what is, is there kind of an appropriate size of, of a legislature for, a, a, I forget, I didn't see the exact, well, again, it's exact, but what, what the, the new number of American people is definitely above 300 million, but it's, I can't remember exactly what they, right. they counted as, as, but um, yeah, I mean, we've had this, we've had the same 435 representatives in Congress, um, as you say, since what is it, 1929 or something like that. And, uh, and of course we're, we're stuck with a hundred senators for as long as we have, right. uh, 50 states. Um, right. I, I, I guess the Constitution would allow us to have 150 senators, but there has to be the same number of senators for each state, regardless of population. Yes. Which, Which is issues of, it, in and of itself is an issue, right? You know, yeah. being, being, especially being in California and knowing that Wyoming. <laughs> has similar power and you know and of course here's looking at you joe manchin right like the, the most powerful senators from west virginia right now which is a little insane um but but you know i i don't even fault the system that i, I do fault it but let me uh, this is me trying to be fair i don't necessarily fault sort of the system that uh worked uh not especially well though but that worked some you know 200 years ago uh, or even a hundred years ago, as we sort of made changes. It's the fact that we are not responsive to what's happening in our society now. I'm judging us now, right? The fact that we're still operating in this framework of having a Congress that's not big enough and having a system where uh, a, a Senator from a small state that ironically lost the seat um, can, can have so much power over our, our policies. Um, and, and, and to me, it, it undermines uh, the, 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 the representative democracy that we're supposed to have. Um, and that's not a conversation that we're having enough. Uh, it's not enough to get rid of the electoral college. I saw so many um, social media posts yesterday. Everybody's like, oh my God, get rid of the electoral college. I'm like, yeah, I mean, the electoral college is problematic, but I think this goes to deeper and more fundamental questions about the disconnect between our elected representatives and the population. Getting rid of the electoral college will not change the fact that you have a fraction of the people um, representing uh, hundreds of millions of people. Uh, but even more importantly, what came to mind in seeing the census results come out was how um, questions about the size of Congress are directly tied to disputes over policy. And we don't typically think of it that way, right? The fear, which is why also there's so much so, sort of argument over whether or not DC should be a state is about how those types of changes would change the power calculus and power dynamic in Congress and affect policy, right? So the failure to enlarge the size of the house, the failure to admit DC as a state um, has a lot to do with demographics, but it also has a lot to do with power and policy in a way that 
uh, um, I think is, is important and matters, right? Because if we're gonna have a representative democracy, I think our representative bodies need to be truly representative. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. But, but what I worry about is that we, as a society, we don't really understand our federal system and therefore can't have a conversation about whether we want to keep it or abandon it. Because it seems to me that the, like the, the disparity between California and Wyoming only makes sense if you think that California and Wyoming should be treated like France and Germany get treated in the European Union. Like they, they, they have this status as, you know, almost like states, I mean, states in the international system, sovereign, like almost nations. Of course, we don't think of California as a nation. We don't even think of Texas as a nation. And yet the constitutional structure assumes that they have that, that status. So there's like this disconnect between the law of our system and the popular culture of our system. And that makes it very hard to change it because people don't really understand it. I mean, if if democracy was only supposed to happen at the level of state government, so that we looked at California and we looked at Ohio and Wyoming and New York, and we say, how is representation fair for all the citizens of California, all the citizens of New York? Great. And then when you put these you know, sovereign entities into a system like France and Germany and the European Union, of course, you're going to give France and Germany equal representation as governments, regardless of their population, because they come to the union as distinct entities. So if we wanted to treat California and Wyoming like you know, Switzerland or Luxembourg, it doesn't matter that Luxembourg's small, it's still a sovereign you know, compared to France. That doesn't seem to resonate for most Americans. I don't really think people think of Wyoming as a country. And yet our yeah. system is built that way. And it's so funny because California has the eighth I think the eighth largest economy in the world or something crazy like that, right? So so I, I, I get, I, I'm actually somewhat conflicted on this in the sense of, I get why states will want equal representation, right? To the extent that we see ourselves as, um, you know, a nation in which people move freely between states uh, and just fewer people have chosen to move to Wyoming than, you know, other states. Uh, yet Wyoming is still a state that's on equal standing with the other states within our union. Okay, I, I get the argument, but for me, it's the disconnect between our democratic norms and our actual, and our sort of textual constitutional structure, democracy, small d. Like, you know, we, I think most people outside of people who sort of do work in the same space as us, Ned, they think that we are a democracy and that, you know, we do democratic things. It turns out that, you know, we are a republic that has democratic norms and we do some anti-democratic things. And when anti-democratic things happen, even if those anti-democratic things are consistent with the constitutional text and structure, people are shocked, right? How can this happen here? Right, right. <laughs> right? And so for me, it's that disconnect, right? And so it's that, and, 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 and honestly, there are, I would say a majority of Americans who think that the country is way more democratic than it actually is, which is why people were so surprised by the aftermath of what happened in November leading to the January 6th Capitol insurrection, because, oh my God, how can that happen here? Uh, but when, you know, for those of us who have studied the history around, the, around you know, particular election disputes and the disenfranchisement of African-Americans in the South, and, you know, it's, it was shocking, yes, but I, was, I wouldn't say it was necessarily surprising given that it's happened here before. 
Um, I had an op-ed uh, a few months ago where I talked about the Wilmington insurrection of 1898, right? As an example of, um, you know, uh, you know, a white mob taking power from a democratically elected uh, government in, in Wilmington, North Carolina. And so, so these are, you know, they're, they're shocking to people today, but in part it's because our democratic expectations are drastically different from the actual framework of our democracy that is provided for in the constitution, right? And that's in part because it's really not a democracy, it's a republic, and we just have democratic norms that if we fail to constitutionalize them, we can lose them. Now, let me make one other point because I, I think this is important. I'm not saying that we have to constitutionalize every democratic norm that we have as a society. Uh, but what I am saying is to the extent that there's too much of a gap between our reality and our expectations, then that could lead to things like January 6th, right? That could lead to sort of the, the violence and the upheaval that, you know, seems so counter to our democratic norms. But one of the benefits of constitutionalizing those norms is that it lessens debate, right? It, it creates clear, clear expectations about what it means for us to be a democracy in that moment. Even if our norms exceed that, we have updated it to reflect that, hey, you know, where you have a free and fair election, uh, you don't get to rebel, right? This is not 1776. Uh, for some reason, their understanding of the constitution doesn't necessarily accord with that. Um, at least some of them, uh, you know, I admittedly some of the people in the crowd was just, you know, doing what they do. But, you know, one could look at what happened in January and say, we are having a clear disagreement about what it means to be an American, what American democracy means, and the future of American democracy such that constitutionalizing our norms and expectations around some of these questions becomes um, increasingly important. Uh, and so the, the census uh, issue I actually see as a part of that, right? To the, the, to the extent that there are states that are gaining seats, i.e. I'm looking at you, Texas, that have been at the forefront of voter suppression, um, and trying to disenfranchise individuals. North Carolina is another one that is gaining seats where in the wake of uh, the, the 2008 election, you saw efforts there to, uh, you know, to, to make it harder to vote, right? So these are states that have uh, sort of developed a reputation for being bad on voting issues, yet they're gaining seats, right? And so it raises core questions about, well, what do you do about that? They are, it, it's almost a mirror of what happened in the South uh, after the Civil War. Right, the South didn't want to enfranchise Black people, but they were about to gain a ton of representation in Congress because the three-fifths clause was no longer a thing. Now African-Americans would be counted as a whole person, but they did not want to enfranchise them. Right? We are looking at states that are gaining seats in Congress, but they're trying to make it harder for Black and brown people to vote. Right? So, so what do we do with that? As a country moving forward, how do we think through these questions of representation and voting such that there's more parity between sort of how we view ourselves and what our constitutional text provides? Yeah, what do we do with that? That's that's the key question. So can I throw one question back at you, which is, um, you know, if, if we're going to kind of big picture this, I've, I've asked myself from time to time, why do we do representation based on geography, right? I mean, in other words, the, you know, the, the, the model of pure democracy is like, you know, the, the, whether it's the New England town meeting or or just a, a referendum where everybody gets to vote, right? I mean, that's direct democracy without representation. Obviously, we can't govern ourselves as a country of three, over 300 million people completely by direct democracy. So we need some representation. But if we are all Americans, 
we don't necessarily have to do it by where we live. That's one way to do it. I've wondered whether or not we could structure a legislature where the, I don't think we've talked about this on the, on the podcast before, but, but it's relevant to this point if we have, we could have um, representatives selected based on age. So everybody born in the same year in the United States, you know, would get a, a senator or a representative in Congress. And it's like voting for class president in your, your senior year in high school or, or whatever, right? We each class, right? I mean, if you were born in the year 2000, you get a seat. If you were born in 1961, you get a seat. Whatever year you're born, you get a seat. Now that immediately, for those of us who teach con law, that immediately bumps up against the doctrine of one person, one vote, because we know that if if there's not the same number of individuals alive who were born, obviously the people who were born in 1940 who were getting on are sadly not as many with us as there are who are you know 21 years old or whatever, right? But you could have fractional votes in the legislature, right? So, so each representative elected by year of birth could have a fractional vote in the legislature corresponding to the number of people they represent, right? So, so just to do the simple math, say there's a million P Americans born one year and a million point five Americans born, born another year. So then representative number one has one vote, representative number two has 1.5 votes. Is that a better or worse way to represent us as a people, as a governing body, than to divide us into New York and California and Wyoming, and then for New York and Minnesota to be fighting over the, the last seat in the House of Representatives, or as we were talking about before, Wyoming and California to each get two seats, despite the huge difference in population. Right. So, so I, I take your point to to be, you know, despite the one person one vote problems, and you know, but I take your point to be that this isn't the only way to do this. Right. And, um, and, and, and I actually accept that invitation because I think part of the, the task has to be going through different variations of, of how we can best represent the American public uh, to see what works better because our current system isn't working. Right. So, you know, you can imagine, if not age, some other characteristic that results in a, represent, a representative having a fractional vote. Right. Like that. I mean, there are ways to do it. There are, you know, hundreds of countries that somehow managed to, to, mm -hmm. to, to develop ways to, to have uh, effective governance schemes or ineffective, right? Like you learn from both good and bad in trying to develop the current system. I think the problem though, and this, this will always be a problem regardless of the proposals on the table, we venerate our current system. We complain about it. We talk about how it doesn't work, but we don't change it because we have bought into the mythology about the American founding. Right, that you know, these you know, white men came together and they created something special in this moment that we have to hold on to, right? And so, you know, and we do that without a realization that the country in you know 2021 is not the country of 1789, um, it's not the country of 1803, you know, when they changed presidential elections to re in response to the fact that it wasn't working, <laughs> by the right. way. Um, this is not the country of 1868 and 1870 when we got the 14th and 15th Amendments. We are a very different country. And in prior times, despite the veneration of the founding, we have managed to make changes in response to what we see before our eyes now. 
it makes no sense to me that the last constitutional amendment was about congressional pay raises. Who gives a care, right? Like that was 1992, <laughs> right? Like let's, you know, we really need to figure out who we are and what we want our governor and documents to reflect. And we've done it before. Why not venerate that, right? Our ability to change in response to the circumstances before us is just as important as that founding moment that we are building on. Um, right. But I, I do think that uh, part of the problem, um, and one thing that your one issue that your proposal would face is you still have the problem with the fox's garden and hen house, right? Like we can talk about, you know, how much that you know one representative has power relative to another, but we also need need to think about the structure of our democratic institutions, such that there is some in my opinion, greater role for citizen involvement in oversight of these elected officials beyond just casting the ballot every two years or four years or special elections and so on. Um, because I think one of the very powerful lessons of, um, of recent years is that oversight matters. Um, and, and I mean, if you look at what's happening in California with the governor, right, I think the governor, after a few missteps, but uh, I, you know, I with the, the COVID pandemic, I give elected officials breaks. I don't know if it's about sort of me being an administrator in a, <laughs> in a time of a global pandemic, but the governor in California is facing a recall um, and they have uh, gotten enough signatures to get it on the ballot this fall. Uh, and so we'll be deciding whether or not he should be recalled. And part of it was uh, the mass mandates and the shutdown and, and people were very upset about that. Uh, but I, I don't, my sense is I, I'm willing to make a prediction that it won't succeed in part because, uh, you know, California currently has one of the lowest positivity rates in the country. Uh, but one might say, you know, and, and this is a point that will probably be made. One of the reasons why our positivity rate is so low now is because a ton of people had COVID, <laughs> right? No. have already had it, right? Like, uh, and, and, but we're also, um, you know, doing a very good job with our vaccinations and, and so on. So there's, you know, there are different things that both opponents and supporters of the governor can point to in the effort to either recall him or prevent his recall. But the reality is, I think it's a very interesting way of thinking through this uh, concept of accountability. Right. So the ability to recall a governor outside of the uh, traditional election cycle is just very intriguing to me. It's happened here once. That's how California ended up with Arnold Schwarzenegger as governor. Right. Uh, but to my understanding, it's happened very few times in our country's history. So. Well, I think a lot of states don't even have the recall mechanism. Um, I think, you know, I, I haven't done a survey of the states that that do, but I don't believe it here in Ohio, we can do a recall. Um, I think you have to just have to wait till the term is up or do impeachment. You can always impeach, I guess, if you think there's a high crime or the equivalent. I know that um, Wisconsin, right, had that recall, right? Because they, they, was it Governor Walker um, right. faced a recall? So different, some other states do it, but I think you're right. It, it, it goes to this question of in a, in a representative democracy, if, if the people who are supposed to be sovereign don't like what their representatives are doing, can they, you know, reel them in, pull them back, you know, pull them back. So I think that's a, a good good thing. You know, I, 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 I totally 100% agree with you that we should not venerate our founders. They didn't venerate themselves. There's this really good book that I'm only halfway through and I forget the title. 
Um, maybe we can put it in the show notes. It's, a, it's about the framers' own attitude about their own handiwork and how they were not, uh, you know, they, they did not venerate. In fact, they were quite pessimistic on its potential longevity. They would be right. shocked that it survived as, as it did. And they had um, deep disagreements, right? They had right. deep disagreements among themselves about what the document was almost instantly. Right, like this, this, uh, political parties emerged in part because of disagreements that followed the founders into the governance of the new country. Right, right. So, Absolutely. so this yeah, idea yeah. that they were just on the same page is absurd. It is, yeah, yeah. You know, and but the but one insight that I think they had that we could use without, um, you know, fetishizing it, so to speak, is this idea of separation of powers and structure. So. So we have bicameral legislatures, meaning there's two, right? There's a Senate and there's the House of Representatives. Um, you know, you don't have to do that. Nebraska has just one chamber. Um, but that's why, again, I'm sort of speculating and theorizing, but, but it seems to me that it would be appropriate to say, look, we need to represent the American people. Well, there's different ways to do that. One way is to do it based on geography. So let's make one House of the legislature based on where you live, because that we, you know, we, we, we are different, whether we live in Texas or Alaska, not completely different, we're all Americans, but that's one way to divide us up by geography, and another way to divide us up by age. And some of politics, frankly, I mean, when you think about political disputes, I mean, some, some political disputes are very much land-based, water resources, you know, so forth. But some disputes, like, are we going to pay for education? Are we going to pay for pensions and social security? I mean, that's a lot. It's like what year you were born is going to affect, to some extent, your political attitudes. So, um, you know, it's not. Anyway, I just think it's odd that we have, for where we are in our trajectory as a country, the way we do Congress seems out of step to, to the way we think about ourselves as Americans. It made sense, as you said, it made sense at the beginning to have a Senate where every state got the same number of senators. It, you know, after the Civil War, after the New Deal, after you know, pandemic in January 6th, not sure it makes as much sense anymore. Yeah, but I think part of, in order for there to be meaningful change, right, where, where we're in a situation where we are willing to revisit the health of our current institutions. We have to have a come to Jesus moment that I don't think this country is willing to have. Um, the fact that we are still arguing about a lot of uh, issues about you know, race and racism in 2021 uh, in ways that feel strangely reminiscent of the civil rights era, right? I think that you know, at least African-Americans in my generation had kind of assumed that uh, yes, racism continues to be an issue, but we have we're sort of evolved to new battles um, but even on the voting rights front, like we're still talking about vote denial in 2021. <laughs> Where, right, right. You know, it's like first generation claims vote denial, second generation claims vote dilution, third generation claims vote denial, right? So much that is new is old um, in a way that shows that the country hasn't really reckoned with its history. Um, and I think that's an important part of this representation conversation because part of it is, and you know, I think I saw an interesting story yesterday about how Texas gained two seats, but the expectation was that Texas would gain more, but for efforts by the Trump administration to undermine the census. And, uh, and so it, it affected the number of, and, and of course that's an empirical question, like who knows, but the, the, the sense is that Texas didn't gain as many seats as it would have, but for efforts to keep individuals who are um, undocumented from filling out the census. Um, and so, so, but I, 
the fact that we're having a conversation around that though, even though the, the constitution clearly says people, right? People, that all people should be represented, uh, not all citizens. Um, it's probably one of the few areas where the constitution is actually clear. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, you know, it, it just shows that we haven't reckoned with the fact that demographically we've changed. It has affected mm -hmm. our um, the, the the disputes around race and citizenship in a meaningful way, um, and it and that in in turn bleeds into questions of representation, right? Until we're willing to have that hard conversation about that's the question of who we are, right? Are we a diverse country of three hundred plus million people where we try to honor the background? Um, the heritage, the, you know, just of, of all the people who make up this great nation, or are we a country where an uh, aging white population can continue to try to hold on power, hold on to power and keep these different demographics from being represented in our system of government? To me, the answer to that is obvious, but the answer to that is not obvious to everybody. Otherwise, you know, the foxes guarding the hen houses would not be working so hard to keep people from voting and turning out and, and trying to depress um, the uh, number of people filling out the census, right? We're seeing before our very eyes efforts to um, make re our representation, you know, wider and older uh, when in fact the country is younger and browner. Um, mm -hmm. And so until we have a hard conversation about that, until we can change that, it makes it very hard to change a system that everybody knows is not working. Right, right. No, I, I yeah, I mean, I think, Unfortunately, you're you're absolutely right. I, I think I've mentioned once before. I was really struck by how different New Zealand handles um, the the status of its indigenous Maori population, um, which is a minority compared to the Anglo folks. Um, but they consider themselves a bicultural society, and so the the, the necessity it's it's more like Canada with French Canada and Anglo Canada, like every street sign has to be in Maori language as well as, you know, English language. Every, you know, the, the legislature, I think is structured to make sure there's adequate Maori representation. Don't hold me to that, but I think that that's true. Um, uh, and whereas in, in the United States, we, you know, we, it's like our culture is Thomas Jefferson's white culture. And you know, and they're begrudgingly maybe will allow other people into the culture, but it's not a bicultural. It's there are a lot of a lot of white Americans don't think of the United States as a bicultural society. It's like, are we going to be? Are we going to let other people into our culture? And if they come into our culture, they have to come in on our you know on our terms kind of thing. I think that's what caused the 1619 project such a freak out. This was the, when the New York Times said, hey, let's rethink the American history by thinking about the founding moment being, you know, the arrival of slavery. And, you know, a lot of whites didn't want to think about it that way because they didn't want to acknowledge, you know, that there's two narratives. And, and frankly, I think if you think about it again, our native peoples, you know, there's multiple narratives. Yeah. And we've never wanted to equate the narratives we've only wanted to maybe be more inclusive into the dominant narrative right exactly yeah and i so. think that that's part of the challenge right uh, the narrative required decentering white people in a way that they're not comfortable with uh like for example uh there was a, a huge controversy yesterday over comments rick santorum gave at some conference he was attending where he talked about the founding 
as you know, mm. the Europeans birth in this nation. Oh Lord, I even saying it out loud, this, this troubles me. Uh, but, you know, he completely erased, you know, Native Americans from that story. And, you know, they were sort of an offhand, you know, comment. Yeah, I mean, Native Americans were here, but basically there was nothing here when the Europeans got here, right? And, you know, the, you know the, the fact that Native Americans were slaughtered and their culture systematically erased from the American story uh, did not feature in his comments at all. Uh, so, so people were rightly outraged. I mean, I read it and I could not. I'm like, how, how does one even, you know, be so ignorant to make these comments? But at the same time, Ned, I could not shake the feeling that he's, what he said resonated with a certain portion of the population, right? They invite that narrative because it makes them feel more comfortable in the space. It helps them to ignore the changes that they see around them because they are reminded of their own centrality in the American story, even if it's a false narrative. Um, and so, you know, it's scary to me, you know, being a person of color in this country and, and not to mention, I can't imagine how, uh, you know, my Native American brothers and sisters felt listening to that, right? Like, but, but just being a, a person of color in this country and trying to be seen when there is a, a portion of the population that is invested in not seeing you because it disturbs their view of themselves. Um, is it, it makes the task of trying to fix our institutions and trying to fix our country feel insurmountable uh, in a way that we can't feel, right? Because history has also taught us that change is possible. And that's what I'm holding on to, right? So we can have this conversation about, you know, Congress is too small. Um, it might not get fixed tomorrow. We might have to beat back this narrative. We might have to convince people. Some people might, frankly, sorry, have to die off. Uh, <laughs> But at the end of the day, I feel like change is inevitable. Um, and, and I felt that way, come, you know, looking at the census, even if you see the states gaining seats and the states losing seats, right? The Midwest and the, the Northeast are losing population because a lot of people are moving South. Uh, but the people moving South are more progressive and liberal in their views, which is why Georgia is frankly blue <laughs> now, right? So, so even in that space, right? These are the types of changes that feel inevitable to me as well such that, you know, my concerns about, you know, the generation that seeks to hold on to the older narrative, uh, to me, the a narrative that is not really reflective of the American founding and sort of the, the progress of America. Uh, that's why I feel like we can't be, be, be overwhelmed like that, because um, also part of it, part of the beauty of living here is the fact that America is a flawed country and uh, it needs fixing, but we all have a role in fixing it. Right, we people have consistently forced America to um, live up to its ideal of we the people um, in a way that gives me faith in the country. Uh, but but in some ways, it's like one of the things I felt listening to Rick Santorum's speech is uh, a sense of despair that I had to kind of beat back and say, okay, but this is not the future, right? This is the past that we have to force back into the past, uh, and it's just very important to move forward. Sorry, that was really long. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's okay. Important. Um, I mean, I think so. I'm of two minds on on this because I 100% agree. As I hope my previous comment made clear that that I think if if we ignore race, we don't understand America, and we'll never we'll you know we'll we'll never get to the promised land because we'll be in a state of denial. Um, and I think there's too much of our current culture that either ignores it or will, is in willful ignorance or blind to the reality of it. Um, 
So race has to be kind of central to our story where I think a lot of people want to frankly whitewash it and kind of pretend it's irrelevant. Like we're a colorblind society, we don't have to think about it. I think that's a mistake. Um, but you know, other societies that have had various kinds of ethnic conflict that have tried to move to democracies have tried to institutionalize, you know, government power, legislative representation for different ethnic groups. Again, I'm not sure I'm, you know, thinking, but I, I think when they built the Iraqi constitution, uh, you know, they had, you know, X percentage of the seats are set aside for this language minority or this ra racial group. And I think some religious, some societies that are religiously conflicted do the same thing. Like, you know, we, we've got to make sure we have adequate representation for each group. And, and it's not based on whether on geography, New York or California, it's based on ethnic identity. So in theory, you know, we could, after taking the census, we could ask ourselves, you know, what percentage of Americans are of the di different demographic groups like Native American or Asian or Latino or whatever and set aside seats in the legislature, you know, where we actually voted, you know, instead of voting geography or voting age, we voted in, you know, ethnic cohorts or, um, I think to institutionalize race to that extent in our representation structures would would make me nervous. I mean, and you know, and and I'm happy that the Voting Rights Act, although protective against vote dilution, doesn't kind of go that that far. But I think if we're trying to think deeply and theoretically about what's the best way to do a democracy for a divided society, you you, you can't completely rule that that out so I but think I, that's I the only like... way to do it though no i'm just i'm i don't think we necessarily have to institutionalize uh you know different races there are plenty it's, and I, I learned this in living in california there are plenty of people who are um biracial and and multi-ethnic and right, right, you know exactly. not in a you coming from the midwest you know you we really are you know, the Midwest is diverse too, but diversity in California is a totally different thing that really opened my eyes to sort of, you know, the, the beauty of it all in a way that, that that type of system, I don't know if that's compatible with the sort of the range of people that we have in this country. Uh, but to some extent we do, uh, there are ways to take race into consideration um, in, a, in a way that doesn't require us to do that. In some ways, we already do it. Like, for example, and, and maybe we need to start being more honest with ourselves. When Justice Thomas retires, who's going to replace him? Somebody Black, right? Because <laughs> in some ways, you know, we start to look at things as that's the Black seat, or that's the Hispanic seat, or that's the woman seat, right? Like, you, you know, it, it, some things become uh, de facto uh, in a way that I don't know if it's necessarily good or bad, but it just is, right? So, so to me, like, you know, it's a question of what do we do in practice versus what do we want to formally institutionalize? Right. And so, right. in terms of you know formally institutionalizing certain things, uh, we've made it hard to even make race a consideration for a lot of things in a way that's counterproductive, right? So, even if we could do that, that would be a step forward, right? Because that wouldn't require us to you know, divide ourselves into racial ethnic cohorts where we're then battling for political power and it could actually have a negative impact on uh, race relations in this country. Instead, you know, sort of taking race into consideration for various um, public things would, you know, I think invite 
uh, different people to the table who wouldn't norm normally have a seat. Right, it's just that the Supreme Court has interpreted the Constitution in a way where benign racial classifications are treated the same as invidious ones, which is, you know, which is not true. It's, there are clearly some race-based policies that can help facilitate the political power of minorities in this country that induced, and it does so in a way that doesn't, you know, you know, divide us up into competing sort of factions that could undermine the democracy. And the idea that the court can't tell the difference between the good and the bad is another thing that's absurd to me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's we um, we probably have to wrap up pretty soon. But I was wondering whether or not, again, as a matter of theory, just to think about it, you could have people self-select into their own districts or seats, right? I mean, it's like I don't know if you went to a college where you could kind of choose what dorm you wanted to live in or whatever. And obviously, there's a fixed number of seats in a in a dorm or beds in a dorm so you know there had to be like a lottery system for the popular ones or whatever but but if if you could you know if you could say we're going to have 100 seats in the legislature everybody can sign up for whichever one they prefer you know it doesn't have to be based on geography it's it's a kind of i mean we do sort ourselves based on geography mm -hmm. the big sort is a huge issue for districting right. but we could actually just sort ourselves into these abstract, you know, district one, district two, district three, based on, you know, whatever we cared about. I, I don't know if I that would know. work. Part of, the, part of the problem, though, is how we're sorting ourselves, right? We're sorting ourselves into these homogenous uh, enclaves where we have our own news, you, you know, Fox News yeah. or One America or MSNBC or whatever it is. And you can sort of live your life having a view of the world that is at odds, com complete odds with another portion of the country and never having your views challenged. So part of the problem is how we're sorting ourselves. And I, I'm not yes. quite sure how to fix that, frankly. Um, Let's say that one for another podcast, because yes. that, that deserves its own podcast. Yes. But I do think that your point stands, and it's probably the, the best takeaway of this episode. This is not the only way to do this. <laughs> and that's the point. We have to we have to think through the difficult issues around that, the, the issues of race and representation and uh, demographics and you know but the point stands this is not the only way to do this this is not the only way to do this i think that should be the title of the episode yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh well uh, thanks for another great conversation yeah. um and uh we'll talk soon again i hope all right take care Ned. all right you too for bye-bye bye, -bye. bye. That's our episode for today. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Eric French and Jillian Thompson at Ohio State and Larissa Puro at USC for their roles in producing this podcast. Fernita and I very much appreciate all the support we receive at both our home institutions to make this joint endeavor possible.